What up? Greatest show on dirt. Live from the Speed Beast Studios. I'm your host, Quentin. We are live. Um, <laughs> uh, Sistine Chapel Podcast Studios. I'm your host, Quentin, a.k.a. Q-Dog, a.k.a. Pop-Tart King of the South, a.k.a. The Hostess with the Mostest. Put them ding-dongs in the freezer. What it do? Listen, man, I, a couple episodes ago, uh, the last episode you listened to actually was probably just about general baseball stuff from Bryce Harper, but the episode before that, I talked some about the 1994 strike and Tony Gwynn. And I promised a second episode where I would rant about the, you know, some other parts of the 1994 strike. I do find it very interesting. I love the nostalgic feel of baseball. And so this is sort of going to be the second part of that. So if you didn't listen to the first part where I talked a little bit about the 1994 strike and Tony Gwynn, go back about two episodes. You'll see it. There's a lot of uh, chaos at the beginning. And then we get into uh, some Tony Gwynn stuff. It's a fun one, man. I Dude, I totally, I really do dig, you know, love digging into this stuff. Like I said, the strike happened. I was only 10 years old. And it's really fun to get back in it and just look at all these previous baseball stats. You know, what happened during that season. It is it is a blast. And all the Tony Gwynn stuff, holy cow. I mean, Tony Gwynn put up a beautiful season, man. And I love always sort of going back and looking at previous seasons and just recognizing the players, you know, that we had and, you know, the stats they put up, who they were as human beings and things like that. And... You know, like in Tony Gwynn's case, man, it really is just, uh, it's, it's amazing, man, just to go back and, you know, not only look at his stats, but just, you know, the things he did during his season that, you know, made him such a good guy. Like, um, I do mention in that episode about when he's, you know, in the running to bat 400 as the strike shortened season's coming to an end, uh, the Padres manager at that time, I think, was Jim Riggleman, and there were runners on first and second with nobody out, and Tony Gwynn had offered to sacrifice himself and bunt them over, but Jim Riggleman shook him off, and he goes, no, Tony, don't do that. You're about to bat 400. Like, why would you do that? You know, and that's just who Tony Gwynn was. And in today's episode, uh, we'll talk about Matt Williams. We'll talk about the Montreal Expos and sort of unpack some of the storylines that were around that. So, like, so let's start with Matt Williams, right? So, I obviously, I think, <laughs> here's, dude, I think being a kid, right? So there there was a time where every season, every new Major League Baseball season carried with it the anticipation of a hitter batting 400 and a hitter hitting 62 home runs, right? And so as a kid in the summertime when school was out, I think my favorite words in the world were ahead of Roger Maris's pace, right? When you would wake up and watch SportsCenter. And if Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann were on there or Charlie Steiner or Linda Cohn and you just heard those words, so-and-so is ahead of Roger Maris's pace, like it would just make you so happy and, you know, to get in that sort of stuff. And year after year, you know, whether it was Frank Thomas, uh, King Griffey Jr., Jeff Bagwell, Barry Bonds, Albert Bell, like whomever, man, it was always great. In 1994, um, most of the attention before the All-Star break was on guys like Jeff Bagwell, Frank Thomas, Ken Griffey Jr., and Barry Bonds, right? These were your big household names. These were your sluggers. And these were the guys getting all the attention while, you know, Matt Williams was sort of in the background slugging home runs. And nobody was really paying attention to Matt Williams during the 1994 season, at least 
you know, with the first half of the season before the All-Star break because, you know, he wasn't Frank Thomas or King Griffey Jr., right? I mean, I think even Albert Bell was hitting a ton of home runs that season. And that's sort of surprising to me until you get back into, like, the 1994 season and look at a lot of those stats. And, you know, Matt Williams was leading the league in home runs, but, like, dude, Jeff Bagwell and Frank Thomas, you know, they, these guys were putting up ridiculous seasons, right? Um but you know it was it was definitely a special season for Matt Williams though because he so that season Matt Williams was batting 4th in the lineup and Barry Bonds was batting 5th in the lineup which to me like by today's standards is super weird because you never would imagine any time where Barry Bonds would bat 5th in your lineup but that's how it was so with that sort of design in place that meant because Barry Bonds was such a dangerous hitter who could hit well over 300, had power, had speed, had all this stuff. Because Matt Williams was batting ahead of Barry Bonds, that meant Matt Williams was going to see a lot of good pitches, was probably going to see a lot of fastballs. And it turns out Matt Williams was, and he took full advantage of it. But so that sort of, you know, was something new to Matt Williams batting right in front of Barry Bonds because he got to see a lot of good pitches. But also, this was one of the rare seasons where Matt Williams was just healthy. Right, Matt Williams' career was riddled with energy, with uh, injuries. God, sometimes I talk too fast for my own good. He had a lot of injuries, right? So he always had back problems. So it was hard for Matt Williams to stay healthy through a whole entire season. And then on top of that, um, you know, just play in a significant amount of games where he could put up statistics. And Matt Williams was always a good hitter. You know, he had a lot of years where, you know, he hit over 300. A, a few years where he hit over 300. I mean, he he was a productive guy. You know, he could hit for power. He struck out a pretty good amount, didn't walk a ton. But he was like, there are a lot of years where he was batting like 277, 294, 336, 302, 303. Like, he had high batting average years. But then when you got him into 1994, he was down to 267 at his batting average. And the whole entire season, Matt Williams did not believe that he was going to break Roger Maris's record. Actually, during the whole 1994 season, Matt Williams thought he was having an awful season. And part of that was because his batting average was so low. Matt Williams, he actually called his 1994 season the season of one for four with a solo home run because he wasn't doing much else. Like He wasn't even hitting any doubles. I think, if I remember this correctly, I think at the end of like, May or something like that he had 10 home runs and only two doubles so it was a really strange sense because he just wasn't really hitting other thing other than home runs like by his own admission he just said I would hit balls and they would just somehow find their way over the wall and I would just be shocked that they were continuing to go over the wall and even as he approached 40 home runs at you know and was maintaining this 62 home run pace he truly did not believe that he was going to hit 62 home runs. As a matter of fact, he even said that the whole season, because he had been playing with Barry Bonds, and he said, well, I'm just waiting on Barry to catch me because he's going to do it because he's such an amazing hitter. And if you just go back, you can go to fan graphs, and every, you can pick any single season you want, and it'll give you the league leaders from that year, which is one of the ultimate like funnest things for like baseball nostalgia, right? So, I thought to myself, I was like, well, why did Matt Williams think that all of these other guys were going to break the home run record? Because Matt always had more home runs than them. I didn't get it. I didn't get it until I went to the Fangrass page. Dude, the 1994 season was such 
a ridiculous season for offense, right? So when you look at Matt Williams, right? So at the time when August 11th, Matt Williams had half 43 home runs and he was on a 62 home run pace. So to put Matt Williams' 43 home runs on August 11th into perspective, uh, Roger Maris, he didn't hit his 42nd home run until August 11th. So on August 11th, uh, Matt Williams was a whole home run ahead of him. So that's where we get the 62 home run pace that Matt Williams was on because he was ahead of Roger Maris by exactly one home run because there's no such thing as one and a half home run. I don't really know why I said exactly, right? It's not approximately one home run. And so I was like, well, let's compare this to some other seasons, right? So I didn't want to compare um, Matt Williams' 1994 to, like, 1998 with Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire because those guys were – they were looked like they were about to enter the Mr. Olympia competition, right? Like, they could tell you where the beach was at no matter when you needed it just with the double bicep pose. And – but I looked, and I said, well, in 1999, you know, Mark McGuire hit 65 home runs, and Sammy Sosa only hit 63. So I was like, that would be a good season to compare it to, right? So what were their paces during these times? So on August 11th, where Matt Williams had 43 home runs, um, Sammy Sosa also had 43 home runs on August 11th. But Sammy was off on August 11th. The Cubs didn't play. So Sammy Sosa actually hit his 43rd on August 10th. So I guess... So at the end of August 11th, though, um, Sammy Sosa on his 63 home run pace in 1999 and Matt Williams in 1994 had the exact same home runs. Um, Okay, so they were on that same pace. So you could see a situation to where Matt Williams could have easily got to 62 or 63 home runs because the year Sammy Sosa hit 63 home runs, well, he was on the exact same pace that Matt Williams was. I was like, okay, well, that, that's legit, man. Because always when you, you know, look back at like the strike short in 1994 season, you just wonder, you know, like, hey, man, like was Matt Williams really going to hit 62 home runs? Or, you know, do people just say that because the season ended? And as it turns out, well, there's a lot of precedents where that actually could have happened. Case in point, Sammy Sosa's 1999 season. And sort of the same stands with Mark McGuire, who hit 65 home runs in 1999. On August 11th, he had 44 home runs. So Mark McGuire only had one more home run in August 11th of 99 than Matt Williams had in August 11th of 94. And he ended up hitting 65 home runs. So the way Matt Williams was swinging the ball, he wasn't hitting a lot of doubles. He was hitting home runs consistently. Like very often, He it wasn't really streaky with Matt any time through that season. He was just consistently putting him over the fence. And based that he had, you know, 43 home runs on August 11th, he could have very easily hit 60 to 65 home runs. So there was a real possibility of that. And I mean, it's not that Matt Williams didn't have any streaks in him at all. Like, I think as the last 10 games of the 1994 season, Matt Williams had hit five home runs. And I think that's sort of key in telling this story because he wasn't getting tired as the season went on, you know, for a guy to hit five home runs in 10 games and in all, you know, um, in August when you had just got through like the hot, hot summer of June and July, and then August is still a scorcher, man, you know, those are good signs that, you know, Matt could have got to, you know, 62, 63 or however many home runs, but also Matt Williams was a very low key guy. He it's almost as if, like, when you look at all these post-interviews, like, these these interviews 
they were Matt Williams reminisces on the 1994 season. He just, even during the 1994 season, he was just sort of like, I mean, I don't think I'm going to break the record. I think I'm having a crappy year. I'm batting 40 points below 300. And, you know, baseball then is not like it was now. You really, there was a lot of pride in batting 300 then. Right now, baseball players just sort of like whore out their batting average for like walks and strikeouts and home runs. But back then, you know, there were guys that were like die and put, I batted 300 on my tombstone. That happened once. Uh, the Ken Burns uh, baseball documentary, dude, if you've never watched it, right? It's the PBS doc. It's amazing. It's like a 10-parter, and it's the greatest thing ever. I've watched it front to back like two or three times. And there was legit a Major League Baseball player like in the early 1900s who died, and he said he wanted um, to on his like tombstone for it to be known that he batted over 300 for his career as a major leaguer. Right. So Matt Williams was completely unimpressed with his year and sort of like Matt Williams demeanor didn't really speak to somebody that was super high strung or let any sort of pressure get to him. So it's almost in that sort of sense, his personality might've been really built for, you know, the September stretch of, continuing to play his game without being affected by, you know, the record and this and that or the other. So it totally could have happened. But to understand, like, why, like, my first question was, like, why did Matt Williams think he couldn't do this, right? Why did Matt think that, like, Barry Bonds or Frank Thomas or somebody else was going to, you know, break 62 and it wasn't going to be him? So this is wild, dude. So the fan crafts, like, the 1994 stats, bro, these stats are ridiculous, man. So, um, so, okay, so if you go to Fangraphs, they give you an offensive number, like an offensive war number, and it doesn't look like your traditional, like, baseball reference war, num war number of, like, a 4.2 offensive war or something like that. You can get a Fangraphs war number that's generally going to be a single digit, but their offensive and defensive numbers are a lot higher numbers. Like, for example, Matt Williams' offensive rating per Fangraphs in 1994, was 20.8, right? That's what his was. Jeff Bagwell's was 66.3. Frank Thomas's was 71.1. And all these numbers really mean is that Matt Williams really wasn't even that valuable of an offensive player this season. In 1994, he led the league in home runs, but Matt Williams wasn't happy because he was having a crappy season. And he's sort of right. His offensive value in 1994... Her fan graphs was, oh my gosh, hold on. I think it was really low. I think Jeff Conine maybe was more valuable than what Matt Williams was. Uh, 20.8. Yep, Matt Williams was actually 27th in the league in 1994 as far as overall offensive value. Um, just behind Jay Buhner and Tony Phillips and Bob Hamlin, right? Like, who are those guys, guy? Um, but the, the seasons, dude, that like, Frank Thomas was having when the strike happened. Frank Thomas had 38 home runs and 106 RBI, or 38 home runs and 101 RBIs. He, Frank Thomas was overall the most valuable offensive player in the league in 1994. And on top of his 38 homers and 101 RBIs, he was batting 353 with a 487 on base. He slugged 729. Him and Jeff Bagwell both had WRC pluses of 205, right? Because Jeff Bagwell might have sort of kind of was having a nuttier season in certain aspects. Jeff Bagwell was 39 home runs and 104 ribbies. He was batting 368 and slugging 750. 
It was unbelievable. Albert Bell, 36 home runs. Albert Bell was batting 357, dude. So I'm kind of just like, no wonder why Matt Williams thought he wasn't going to break the record. He's only batting 260. I cannot believe, dude. Frank Thomas, Jeff Bagwell, Albert Bell were all batting over 350 and were just shy of 40 home runs. So you look at guys like that, and they could have easily got on a streak because they weren't missing the ball, and they were slugging the crap out of it. Now, Jeff Bagwell... He was the MVP in 1994, but right before the strike, he got hit in the hand. So Jeff Bagwell probably wasn't going to play another game for the rest of this season because he couldn't hold a baseball bat. So that wasn't going to happen. But to wonder, like, could Frank Thomas or Albert Bell probably run into a few extra balls and get hot down the stretch? I mean, they were both slugging over 700 and batting over 350. Like, it could have happened, you know? And to put that in today's terms, because we know right now in 2019, Mike Trout, Christian Yelich, and Cody Bellinger, dude, they're having nutty seasons, right? Mike Trout is having the best season offensively in the whole entire league of baseball. His offensive number per fan graphs is 64.4. Frank Thomas's was 71.1. <laughs> so he's having a better season in 94 than what Mike Trout is having this year. His um, WRC plus, Mike Trout's is 186 this season. And again, Mike Trout offensively is having one of the best seasons of his career, 64.4 off, or shoot, uh, 186 WRC plus, Frank Thomas 205 WRC plus, and then Jeff Bagwell 205, and then Albert Bell had a 186 WRC plus, so in 1994, Albert Bell offensively was as good as Mike Trout is this year. That's unbelievable. I so often, I forget, like, dude, how good some of the guys in this era were, dude. Like, I mean, I hadn't, I didn't really ever realize that Albert Bell had ever batted 357 in a season, dude. But these numbers are nuts. But then King Griffey Jr., man, was sort of your wild card in that mix. So he was at 40 home runs when the strike hit. And even Griffey Jr. was batting 323 and slugging 674. So when it came down to it, you could say, like, you know, Matt Williams was probably that guy, but honestly, from a home run pace and sort of like having a good batting average and good slugging, Griffey Jr. is one of those guys that could have really got hot that season and broke the home run record. Um, but yeah, do yourself a favor. Just go to fan graphs and just click on like previous season stats. It's one of the funnest things I think a guy could do or girl could do. Actually, this doesn't have to be it. I might have a daughter in February. And if I do, she's going to be playing baseball, probably hands down. If she wants to play softball. She can, but baseball it is. But other offensive notables in 1994, dude, Fred McGriff was at 34 home runs. You know, I'm just, uh, let's just base this actually um, best off, best offensive production right here in 1994. So let's look at the overall offensive number, how Fangraphs judges folks, right? So Barry Bonds was probably the fourth best hitter in the league overall. He was batting 312, had 37 home runs. Dude, Tony Gwynn, uh, we talked about Tony Gwynn. There's a lot of good stuff going on there. Paul O'Neill was batting 359. Like, what in the world? Kenny Lofton was batting 349, but oh, the crime dog, bud. The crime dog was in the mix, dude. He had 34 home runs and was batting 318. There were so many guys. Everybody was batting over 300 this season. Paul Molitor was batting 341. Moise Alou, 339. Wade Boggs, 342. Bro, Mo Vaughn, yo. Do you remember Mo Vaughn for the Red Sox? Yo, he was a thick lefty, dude. Yeah, man. Mo Vaughn was even batting like 
310 at this point, had 26 home runs. I think Mo Vaughn may have won an MVP one year. I'm not 100% sure, but I think he might have. Dude, Will Clark, dude, Will Clark was batting 329. He was having a primo year. You had the pizza man, Mike Piazza, dude. He was doing pretty good. Other guys on here, dude, tell me there's got to be some Rockies on here. Bro, Andres Galarraga, he was batting 319, dude. He had 31 home runs. Dante Bichette, bro, Dante Bichette was legit, dude. Even Chili Davis had 26 home runs and was batting 311. There's, I mean, this was just a year. I don't, part of me suspects that I don't think that pitching was really great in 1994. So there were a lot of guys, yes, that were healthy in 1994. And there just maybe weren't a lot of really – teams didn't have great pitching in 1994, right? Unless you were like the Braves or the Expos, you could probably just get, you know, battered, <laughs> right? Like a good bucket of chicken from KFC. It's just bad news over here, man. Ruben Sierra was up in this mix. Well, he had 23 home runs, but he was batting 268, dude. I'll tell you this right now. Go to YouTube and watch uh, – Ruben Sierra's home run in the American League Division Series in 1995. Dude, he's got the ultimate strut out of the batter's box. Dude, it is great. But that's, dude, super interesting, man, with all of the the stats, dude, from 1994. What I think that, um, you know, could have happened that year with, you know, Matt Williams and other guys making a run for it. And again, it was the, it was a very, you know, offensively productive season. I do think a lot of that had to do with pitching, but I mean, it was really just a perfect storm. A lot of it might have had to do with the strike, to be honest with you. If guys' minds are elsewhere, maybe they didn't have the time to overthink baseball a whole lot because I can't, I can't, I mean, I can't tell you why this season was just so out of control, you know, from an offensive production. But I mean, we're talking 1994, you know, guys were hitting the needle, I would say. Most definitely, they were getting involved in some stuff for sure. Um, dude, Jay Buner was up. At, I mentioned Jay Buner, dude. Jay Buner was a fun guy to watch, dude. His nickname is Bone. That's what his nickname was when he played. He sort of looked like Stone Cold Steve Austin, which was pretty legit. Uh, Bobby Bonilla, Julio Franco, dude. Just This is just, I love going through these stats, man. Tim Salmon, dude. He was batting 287. Tim Salmon had good numbers. Gary Sheffield, dude. Gary Sheffield's got one of the all-time best batting stances like I can tell you this you've never lived your best life if you haven't been in your backyard like seven or eight you know Miller lights deep and you're playing wiffle ball with your crew and you're doing the Gary Sheffield batting stance right like dude yeah that's the deal man there are a few like great batting stances you have to do in like wiffle ball or softball games I would say Gary Sheffield's is for sure one of them Julio Franco, Julio Franco has to be in the mix. Oftentimes, I'll bat left-handed and go like the Fred McGriff stance because then after he swings, he, um, he's he got the bat with one hand and he whirls it over the top of his body, right? You know what I'm saying? That's always good. You can definitely pretend to be Frank Thomas because he's got more of like an upright stance, which is, is really good. Uh, you have to do the Griffey Jr. stance. You know, if you're, if you're serious about your you know, natty light consumption and winning a wiffle ball tournament. If you're not doing the King Griffey Jr. stance, I don't know what it is, but I think really when you've got to put your rally cap on and you're playing ball in the backyard, just do the Gary Sheffield and I think you can lead your team to victory. All right, Greatest Show on Dirt. You're still listening to the Greatest Show on Dirt. Okay, so I also did a ton of research on the 1994 Montreal Expos. I sacrificed a ton of time at work <laughs> to do this. You know, that's how I get this done, right? Like, 
I work full time, right? I don't make any money off of this podcast. So anything I do is generally on work time. <laughs> yeah, but that's just what you have to do, right? So that's what's up. The 94 Expos, man. Um, there were a lot of things super interesting about it that I found out. So I would say probably over the last like three or four days, I've spent a lot of time just researching the 94 Expos, really researching the Expos as an organization to try to figure out why 1994 would have saved this baseball team. Because, you know, sort of looking back at this, you wonder, hey, you know, is this just something people say when they go back to 1994? You know, everybody loves a good what if story in sports. And so part of me wonders, was that it with the 94 Expos? Was this just a what-if story that like we just want to get behind because it sounds fun? Or was there really something to this? And, and I think there is, you know. I do think after doing the research on the Expos that, you know, I, th- I think I'm pretty confident that baseball would succeed in Montreal if it went back. I believe that 1994 was a very pivotal year for the Montreal Expos. And if they had been able to play, pay that play that season through that baseball would still be in Montreal okay so let me just give like a quick background on what it was with the Expos right so the Expos uh they became a baseball team in 1969 and it was a weird situation there because things were things were difficult from the get-go so for example the the owners of the Montreal Expos right they were never really baseball people so the guy that owned the Expos, the first owner of the Expos. He was the heir heir to the Seagram's Jim fortune. Seagram's Gin, you know, like Snoop Dogg, right? Where he's like, I got me some Seagram's Gin. Everybody got their cups, but they ain't chipped in. Now this type of... Yo, I could keep going, son. Yo, they call me Q-Dog on the streets. Um, But what it was is, you know, uh, the first owners, right? These people weren't really baseball people. So I don't believe they understood a lot about owning or running a baseball team. And so from the get-go, while these folks, you know, Charles Bronfman was the guy's name. And it was one of those things to where when he was vying to get this baseball expansion team, he actually almost didn't get the team because they couldn't nail down a temporary ballpark to get this thing going. Now, they for sure didn't have a permanent ballpark, and they really couldn't get a temporary ballpark. And the bu- Buffalo, Buffalo almost got the baseball team. Kid you not. But finally, the Expos, they got a temporary facility that they were supposed to stay in for like a couple years. But as it turns out, they stayed in the temporary stadium like seven years too long because they couldn't get a permanent place to stay. And the temporary place was awful. It wasn't covered, right? And we're talking Canada, right? Canada gets real-life snow. They don't get the sort of cute snow where it's like, oh, it snowed a couple inches. Let's go throw snowballs. No, it's like probably... It's no two foot outside. Do we think we've got enough liquor to live, <laughs> you know, because you're not getting out of the house like straight up like living in Canada must be like an episode of Naked and Afraid where it's just like you versus the elements. And that's what it was. This temporary stadium like wasn't even covered. Uh, none of it was like all, if you had a seat in the old stadium, none of it was covered by the elements hot or cold. That's not good. Like, I don't know if you've been to an Atlanta Braves game in July 
But, like, it's no joke. Like, it is no joke. Like, I can't put baby, I can't put enough baby powder in between my thighs because they rub together so hard because they sweat and it's just never good. It's, it's, it's hell. Atlanta is essentially hell on earth, right? If you don't think global warming is real, go down to Atlanta in July, bro. They call it hot Atlanta. Like, I think they should call it hell Lanta because <laughs> it's that bad. But so they get into Olympic Stadium and now Olympic Stadium and I didn't realize this either. Olympic Stadium wasn't even built for baseball. Olympic Stadium was built for the Olympics. So this stadium was never designed to have to for a baseball field. It just never was. But they made it into a baseball field. But still, after they moved into Olympic Stadium, they didn't have a cover on Olympic Stadium for like another ten years. So it was so it was still awful. Numerous de- weather delays all the time. It wasn't a great viewing experience at all, at all. It was like I heard Olympic Stadium was described one time as just one big giant ashtray. <laughs> you know, it was just a big concrete bowl of just. Like, it sucked, and it sucked, too, for players to play on, right? They didn't replace the turf in Olympic Stadium for two decades. Two decades, it had the same turf. That is nuts. And there was barely any padding out on the walls. Like, Montreal Expos, like, they they weren't big spenders, and it wouldn't matter if they were big spenders because, like, free agents made it known that they would not go there and play because it was such a bad place to play. And so what so th- so that's what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at with the stadium is this. Montreal really never had a fighting chance because the owners they didn't really understand the game of baseball and they didn't really understand, you know, how to spend or what to spend on or really how to promote a team. Like Felipe Alou when he was manager of the Expos, he had a a, a friend of his who was a coach in the Dominican come to Montreal for a game and Felipe's friend told him that how's this team like, even exists. Like, there was nowhere around the ballpark to buy merchandise. Even the guy's taxi cab driver, when he went to Olympic Stadium, the taxi cab driver couldn't even find the entrance to the stadium. It's because he wasn't taking folks to the stadium because they didn't want to go, right? It wasn't that Montreal didn't like the Expos. It's just the experience was so bad. You know, it's sort of like if I love Pizza Hut and a, a stuffed crust pizza is my favorite in the world, but the only Pizza Hut within 10 miles of my place is a dump and the people they burn the pizza or they cook it raw and the place smells funny and the seats aren't comfortable I'm probably not going to go there even though I like Pizza Hut pizza and like that's sort of how it was with the Montreal Expos it's like they love the Expos and they love the fans and the fans love the Expos and the team but it wasn't ever ever a great place to go so so that's so from the beginning, right, this was a really difficult thing to do. Now, to dig into the 1994 team, hold on, let me make sure I don't have anything else to say background-wise about this. Um, no, I think that's that's pretty much it. Okay, so let's sort of get into the Expos as a whole. So in 1992, they hired Felipe Alou. Now, Felipe Alou was looked at is like the Joe Madden of the early 90s. Felipe Alou was very much a developmental guy, meaning that he was really good at developing players, and everyone in the Expos organization, as far as any sort of coach, they were all developmental-type people. And as it turns out, the Montreal Expos had one of the, if not the best, player development system 
around. They had the best. You know, they turned out guys like Randy Johnson, Vladimir Guerrero, Cliff Floyd, Marquise Grissom, Delino DeShields. These were all like young studs. And really, Pedro Martinez as well, right? So <laughs> there's a funny story. Check this out, man, how uh, Pedro Martinez was on the LA Dodgers and his brother Ramon was on the LA Dodgers. I forget that Pedro had a brother named Ramon. Ramon got second in Cy Young voting one year, won like 20 games. <laughs> yeah. But here's what, here's how they got Pedro Martinez, right? So Felipe, he's coach at the Felipe's first season as the Expos coach, right? was in 1993. And in 1993, the Expos actually won like 94 games, but in 1993, yeah, 1993, they won like 94 games, the high 90s. But they were in second place in 1993 to the Philadelphia Phillies because, remember, the Phillies went to the World Series and lost to Joe Carter on the walk-off home run that Mitch Williams gave up. Wild thing, right? Okay. So, where was I at with that? Oh, okay. So, that was in 1993. Now, everyone says that the Expos just – the Expos in 1993, they essentially found their voice, right? They found who they were as a team, and if there had just been a little more time in the season, they were well on their way to taking over the Philadelphia Phillies. Everyone says that that's old enough to remember and watch the 1993 season, but they just ran out of time. But at the end of the 1993 season, the Philadelphia Phillies were not as good of a baseball team as what the Montreal Expos were. They weren't. They weren't. But the Expos, they were still young. And by the time they found their way, there just wasn't enough season left. Okay? So when 1994 came around, this team, they were geared up, right? So here's what happened in the offseason, right, of 1993. Um, the GM at the time was Dan Duquette. And that's the guy that was the GM of the Tigers and who is also the GM of the Boston Red Sox right now. And he knew that with the payroll situation in Montreal, that they were never going to have a long window because the Montreal Expos were always the team that could develop really good young players. But then those players sort of always were sent off or just weren't retained because they couldn't afford them. You know, it may be no different than like, the Oakland Athletics, you know, like getting rid of like Josh Donaldson or, you know, the Tampa Bay Rays not being able to hold on to a guy like David Price, right? A lot of these big names leave because they're small market teams and they just can't afford them, right? So he was like, I need to make a move quick. That's what Dan Duquette said. He goes, I got to make something happen, man. And he had Delino DeShields, who at the time I believe was 23, and he was a second baseman. He was good, right? He was a highly rated guy. And as it turns out, out in Los Angeles, the Dodgers had Pedro Martinez, who they were pitching out of the bullpen. But they didn't really need him out of the bullpen. But they weren't really going to start him because Tommy Lasorda said, he's like, listen, this guy Pedro Martinez is like 120 pounds. He does not have the size and the strength to be a starting pitcher and to goal a whole entire season. I just don't believe he's got it. So... When the trade came about and Montreal was like, hey, I'll give you Delino DeShields. Give me that guy, Pedro. Uh, the Dodgers were like, take Pedro, man, because he's so small. He doesn't have the strength to be a starting pitcher. He'll never be a starting pitcher. That's what they said. His bullpen time 
in the Dodgers, it was good, but like he, you know, he was meant to be a starter and he was going to be a crappy starter. So if I could get rid of him and get what I thought was going to be a franchise second baseman, yo, give me your second baseman, right? I'll take Pedro. But Felipe, right? So Felipe, the Alus, like Felipe and Moises Alou, right? They're all from the Dominican. And that's also where Pedro Martinez is from, right? So Felipe Alou, yo, he knew Pedro from before. And he was like, uh, yo, get Pedro, right? He told him he goes, get Pedro. Pedro's going to be a good pitcher. Felipe said, Pedro's going to put us over the top. Get Pedro, right? So they got Pedro Martinez. And Felipe knew the whole time. He's like, yo, I know Felipe. I know Pedro's strong enough to last. We just got to keep him to pitch, right? Because right early in Pedro's career, he was wild, right? He had a great fastball, but he couldn't control his fastball. Couldn't control it at all. Pedro Martinez was actually known as a headhunter. If you've ever seen the video when he's at Montreal Expo and he he's pitching and he hits, uh, he hits someone that was sort of a big name and they charged the mound when he was with Montreal. And it was when Pedro Martinez, he was pitching a perfect game and he hit a guy. And the guy thought, I guess he threw at him on purpose or was going inside on him on purpose because we in like the 80s and the 90s, you know, it was it was accepted that the pitcher would get part of that plate, right? Like part of that plate belonged to the pitcher and he was going to brush you back to get it, right? You're talking very aggressive 80s, early 90s type pitching, which I think still happens now a little bit, but not like it did then, right? Those guys were freely, you know, just throwing inside on guys. So... Man, I wish I could remember what player charged the mound on Pedro Martinez. It was I, it, he was throwing a perfect game. It was Reggie Sanders. I had to look it up. He threw. Uh, he went in on Reggie Sanders, and Reggie Sanders charged the mound on him. But later on in his career, Reggie was like, "I should have never charged the mound, right?" And it was that thing. Pedro just didn't have control of his stuff, right? He was a very raw guy. He was sort of like Ricky Vaughn on uh, Major League. Couldn't control his stuff, dude. There's even a story. This really happened, too. So to try to teach Pedro how to pitch, yo, they put a mannequin in the bullpen just like they did on Major League. That's probably where they got the idea. So they're like, yo, we got to teach Pedro how to pitch, <laughs> you know, with like a batter like in place. So they get this mannequin, right? And they put the mannequin in like the bullpen. So in the bullpen, there's just this mannequin there. Presumably they got it from Sears. It could have been a girl mannequin with breasts and a dress. I don't really know. But they get this mannequin. And the like the first couple of pitches like go okay. By the time like the third or fourth pitch, Pedro hits it in the head. The head turns completely cockeyed. There's no video of this, but that help hear Pedro tell the story. It's amazing. And he just clobbered this mannequin, dude. And Felipe's like, what am I going to do, man? So Felipe talks to Pedro, and he's like, hey, man, how do you hold the baseball? And he, he goes, like, well, two seams. Like, he threw a two-seam fastball. And Felipe was like, you throw, I want you to throw a four-seam fastball. And the second Pedro started throwing a four-seam fastball, he goes, it felt natural, and it lined up, right? So that's sort of like how Pedro Martinez got his control. So when I say that Pedro Martinez, even though, you know, he was originally a Dodger, you know, a lot of his success came from being in Montreal Expo because Pedro Martinez said that if it wasn't for Felipe Alou, he would not be the pitcher that he became. And that was because of Felipe Alou teaching him, you know, how to be a great pitcher and a great player. So, you know, so you can even credit a lot of Pedro's success to being in the Montreal Expo system, right? So that that's what the Expos were so good at. So when 1994 came in, they made that trade, and 
everything started to take off. So the Expos had the Expos had good pitching. So Pedro Martinez had a good season that year. He was already up to 11 wins. I think he was like probably a three and a half earned run average, but they had Ken Hill as well. And Ken Hill was the ace of that staff in 1994. So Kenny Hill was, he was a St. Louis Cardinal, I think maybe before he was a Montreal Expo. I think, I don't really recall either before or after. But the Expos got Ken Hill from, I don't remember where they got it. I'll have to search this one up too. I do this podcast completely like by memory. So a lot of this stuff, I don't remember where they got Ken Hill from, but Ken Hill that season, I think ended up like 13 and two. He even had a, he even had one start that season where he outdueled Greg Maddox. There was a, a real turning point in 1994 where the Expos had a three game series against the Atlanta Braves and ended up winning two or three and even pegged Greg Maddox one game for like six innings and five earned runs on nine hits. No, they did. They got In 1992, they got Ken Hill from St. Louis. And Ken Hill had some pretty good stats as a Montreal Expo. His first season as an Expo, he threw 218 innings with a 268 ERA. He got Cy Young votes in 1994. He was second to what I assume would probably be Greg Maddox. I'm not going to click on that. But, I mean, he ran a low three ERA in 1994. And then the Expos also had Jeff Facera, who was a veteran lefty. And veterans really come key on this team because... The Montreal Expos were really young, but there were veterans right sprinkled in that mix, which was which was what made this team so good. I sort of compare the Montreal Expos to like the 2016 Chicago Cubs, right? Who knows if it would have ever become a dynasty, right? But it was that one season where everything was lining up and you had these young players that were young and in their prime and it was everyone together it was like their prime year it was like everyone combines their powers and they become captain planet right when they just all combine themselves and that's what it was because like think about this like Marquise Grissom not a hall of famer right at all um Moises Alou not a hall of famer Larry Walker should be in the hall of fame but to use Moises Alou and Marquise Grissom for example they weren't hall of fame players but their peak years were Hall of Fame worthy years if they could repeat those seasons continuously, right? So, for example, if you go to Fangraphs, okay, Fangraphs has this defensive rating that will sort of tell you how much above average a, a player is on defense. So, for example, and I had to write this one down, Marquise Grissom had a 20.7 defensive rating through 110 games in 1994, right? And that basically tells me when you look at his defense and how well he, you know, just does his job out in the field, I can actually probably tell you, no, I don't have the definition for this defensive number, but Marquise Grissom's 20.7 rating means he was 20.7% better than your average defender. And this defensive rating is adjusted to where you can combine this defensive rating of Marquise Grissom and how they impact the game to Ozzie Smith at shortstop. And Ozzie Smith's shortstop's defensive rating can be directly comparable to Marquise Grissom's rating, right? And a 20.7 for an outfielder was off the charts, right? A lot of seasons, Ozzie Smith would put up like 28s, right? And 
Ozzie Smith was the greatest defensive shortstop that ever lived, one of the best defenders to ever play the game. Now, Marquise Grissom didn't put up 20.7 defensive rankings every year, but this one season he did, and to have a 20.7 defensive rating as an outfielder is unbelievably elite. Mike Trout this season, who's who I think a lot of people think is an elite defender, his defensive rating is 1.8. Okay. In 1994, Marquises was 20.7. The best Willie Mays ever had in a season for a defensive rating was 20.1, which means in the best defensive rating of 20.1 of Willie Mays' career, that means he was 20.1% better than the than the average defensive baseball player. That was elite. So that one season, Marquise Grissom was unbelievably elite and on defensively, right? So and that's what a lot of what you saw on this team was like, listen. You know, there were really good guys on this team, but it was this one year that everyone's skills just lined up, man, and they were young and hit their peak, and that's how it was with the 2016 Cubs to where there aren't a lot of Hall of Famers on that team or Dynasty guys, but they were young athletic guys on that team, and it was the one year in 2016 where everything lined up and things went perfect. That's what was going on in 1994 at the Expos. Everything was going perfect. Right? They stepped on the field, and they knew they were going to win every game. Because they were on fire as this 1994 season ended. They had won, I think, it, they at least, I think it was 23 of their last 26 games is what the Expos won to close the season. Unreal. And that defensive rating that I just said a second ago, um, why I said Marquise Grissom was had a 20.7 Fangraphs defensive rating for 1994, and the highest Willie Mays ever had in the season was 20.1. The definition of the Fangraph's defensive rating measures a player's defensive value relative to league average. Fielding statistics like ultimate zone rating and defensive run save communicate the player's value relative to league average at that position, but the defensive rating adds in a positional adjustment. So you're able to compare defensive value across positions with different baselines. That's exactly what it is, and it's given as a positional average. It says defense is a combination of two important factors of defensive performance. Value relative to positional average, fielding runs, and positional value relative to other positions, positional adjustment. So this defensive rating measures how well above positional average, no matter how, no matter what position you play. And so that season, Marquise Grissom, no matter what position you play, he was 20.7% better than the average defender. And in, the, and in that season was about like an Ozzie Smith or Willie Mays number. And not and blew Mike Trout's defense out of the way. Because if you watch Mike Trout games, right, Mike Trout is a great defender. So that's what the defensive value is. I butchered that enough, I think, right? But one of the most impressive things about the 1994 Montreal Expos was their outfield. In 1994, the combination of Marquise Grissom in center field, Moise Salou in left field, and Larry Walker in right field, one of the best outfields ever in the history of baseball. Hands down, it was the best in 1994, but I believe that this was one of the best outfields ever in the history of baseball. Statistically, Right, all three of these guys were good defenders. Marquise Grissom was an elite defender. Larry Walker won multiple gold gloves in his career, and Moise Alou could cover some ground, right? And what's so impressive about these outfielders is they were true, they were truly good hitters. And one of the things that stood out to me 
was their walk and strikeout rate. So Moise Salou was batting 339 on the season. He walked 42 times and only struck out 63. One of, I think, the best ways to tell how good a hitter is is look at how much they walk and how much they strike out. And if those numbers are within 10 or 20, they're doing really good at the plate, right? So that's what you have with Moise Salou. Marquise Grissom walked 41 times, struck out 66 times. Larry Walker walked 47 times and struck out 74 times. All of those numbers were close. So you had an outfield that was making contact, man. Larry Walker was batting 322. This was truly a breakout year for Larry Walker at 322. Moises Alou was 339. Then Marquise Grissom was batting 228. Marquise Grissom was a fast guy, dude. He could steal bases at the point of it was. Marquise had 36 steals and 25 doubles and 11 home runs. That's all good stuff. Now, let, let's dig into some of this with Larry Walker, man. So Larry Walker... All through his career, he was always a high win player. You know, I, even before the 1994 season, I think like two or three years before that, he had still had seasons of like 4.75 war seasons, right? So this was a guy that could do a lot of things on the play and in the field, right? He could hit, he could play defense. Oh, from 92 to 94, so a three-season span, he had 14.5 war. So that's nearly a five average every season, right? He was an elite bat. And what people get confused about Larry Walker is he just he wasn't just an elite bat in Colorado. 14.5 war from 92 to 94, all of those seasons were in Montreal, right? In 93 and 94, if you combine those seasons, he had 127 walks, only 150 strikeouts, and a 903 OPS, right? His OPS plus in 1994 was 151. Now, let me put this in context for you. So, Larry Walker is 151 OPS. Right now, this season, Alex Bregman has a 153 OPS plus. Pete Alonso has a 156 OPS plus. We know right now that Alex Bregman and Pete Alonso, that they're really good hitters. And if they keep up their current pace, these are guys that could obviously find themselves you know, in the Hall of Fame. They're young and in their prime, so obviously we don't know if that's going to happen. But what I'm getting at is Larry Walker's 151 OPS Plus is in the range of what Pete Alonso's doing right now. You understand? Pete Alonso, the rookie that's just at like 41 home runs. Alex Bregman is an elite clutch hitter who's got 30 home runs on the season, who's on like the best team in baseball, right? Alex Bregman is an elite major league baseball player right now. So to think that like Larry Walker was made by Colorado is simply not true because he was putting up elite numbers. He was an elite hitter in Montreal. Now, granted, he went to Colorado and had some crazy seasons where Larry Walker's seasons in Colorado, dude, are just nuts. He had a season where he batted 379 and slugged 710 and hit 37 home runs, dude. Larry Walker was a hitter, man, but there's so much to Larry that you don't know, dude. Like, check this out. In his career, seven gold gloves, three batting titles, three silver sluggers, and an MVP. In 1994, he had a 351 Babbitt, which is a 351 average, which is a batting average on balls in play, right? That's what Babbitt stands for. 351's pretty high. 351 is at an elite range. And that tells me that he was barreling the ball and hitting it good because if he was making contact, chances, you know, 350, 35% chance that it was going to be a hit and he was getting on base, right? That's a successful Babbitt. But check this out, dude. Larry Walker was the first player. No, 
Larry Walker is the only player to slug 700 and swipe 30 bags in a season. So that tells you that he was an extremely versatile player who didn't strike out a lot, right? He was the first player to hit at least, he was the first player to bat at least 360 in three straight seasons. And now, granted, those seasons were in Colorado, but dude, like, there are guys that play in Colorado all the time that don't bat that high. And he was still on the road half the season. And I'll tell you what they say about people in Colorado is it's not always to one's advantage, right? Because when you play in Colorado, they say, like, breaking pitches. Really, in Colorado, they say every pitch, like, it moves differently, right? And so when a player plays in Colorado, their home games, and then when they go away from Colorado, Yo, they have to adjust to the pitching they're seeing, right? So Colorado, like in one sense, like it could inflate your numbers, but there are a couple things with Larry Walker. One, if you're that Colorado player, you still have to go on the road and adjust and be productive, and Larry Walker was that. But number two, Larry Walker still comes out with a 72.7 war, which that's a Hall of Fame caliber number for wins above replacement, and also a number like OPS+. plus. Listen, OPS Plus is park adjusted. So when I look at his seasons in Colorado, when he was hitting like a 178 OPS Plus, that's a park adjusted number. That means he's nearly 80% better than the average major league hitter. Like, he's officially went Super Saiyan. Like, Captain Planet is here, man. Our powers combined. We are Captain Planet. Like, dude, it was good stuff, dude. <laughs> but, dude, I'm telling you, Larry Walker legit was damn near like the baseball version of Happy Gilmore, dude. Like 100%. He grew up playing hockey, right? He was the youngest of four kids, right? He was the youngest of four sons. He was Larry, right? Larry Walker had a brother named Barry, Carrie, and Gary. <laughs> and he wanted to be a goaltender, dude. Listen, Larry Walker didn't give a shit about baseball. He wanted to be a goaltender, dude. He's Canadian, man. And Larry Walker said he would only play baseball occasionally in the summer dude Larry Walker didn't get serious about baseball until he was 16 because he didn't like he tried out for a couple of hockey teams and didn't make them so he's like oh, I need something to do man I'm just like I want to do something that maybe like I'm good at so like let's play baseball but still when he was 16 like baseball wasn't popular so they would play like 10 games a summer um the competition if you're a baseball player in Canada is like null you know what I mean like there's none of it like literally when <laughs> When, listen, when Larry Walker started playing in, like, bigger leagues, right? Because, like I said, he played about 10 or 15 games a year in the summer in Canada because nobody's playing baseball in Canada. That would just be the equivalent of me, like, trying to find a pickup hockey game on a Saturday in Charlotte, North Carolina. Like, I'm, I, I, that's not going to happen, dude. It's just no way. I'm not going to find it. Nowhere, pal. And so, like, it got... So when Larry, right, starts playing, like, baseball with, like, real folks, dude, Larry Walker did not know a forkball or a slider even existed. He didn't know they existed. And he, like, and he said he had kind of seen a curveball, but, like, he had never seen a good curveball. You know, he told, he told his coaches, he's like, well, when I would play in Canada, some of the guys would throw a spinner, and that's what they would call the spinner pitch. He had never seen a good curveball. Like, he didn't know. Larry Walker didn't know the rules of baseball when he got to the minors. Because, <laughs> like, nobody played baseball. He didn't even know the rules. And he didn't. There were pitches he hadn't seen, bro. It's like a fish out of water, dude. 
It was unreal. But so what happened was in 1984, he was playing in a tournament, dude. And this expo scout was like, yo, who's that dude? Because all these kids are playing with a, a metal bat. But Larry, being like the, the tough Canadian hockey player that he is, he was hitting with a wooden bat, dude. And Larry Walker yokes this home run with a wooden bat, dude. So this scout is like, yo, what's up with this kid, man? So he gets him, and then the Expo sign him, dude, right? So Larry Walker gets to the minor leagues, and uh, pitching for him was quite the conundrum, a quandary, if you will. Larry Walker... When he get to the minors for the Expos, right, he swung at everything because he thought everything was going to be a fastball, right? Because you know when a pitch is coming, right? And, like, on TV, like, when you see a guy swing it like a breaking pitch in the dirt, it's because when it comes out of the pitcher's hand, it looks like it's coming right down the middle, right? Then the pitch breaks, and your reaction time is just, like, you don't have it. So you just have to, like, be quick. Larry Walker would swing at every pitch. Larry Walker was swinging at pitches that would bounce 10 feet in front of home plate. He thought everything was going to be a fastball. He couldn't read a pitch. He couldn't read a pitch. And when camp ended, when minor league camp ended, yo, he joined a fast pitch softball league sponsored by a bowling alley to try to hit. He was so raw, dude. Like, that's just what he was. But and it's crazy that this guy could turn into, you know, one of the greatest hitters of the 90s because, like, he couldn't hit. At the age of 18, yo, he couldn't hit a breaking pitch at all. Like, Vlad Guerrero's in the league right now at 19 or 20 or whatever, right? When Larry Walker was that age, he could barely hit a breaking pitch. Unbelievable, dude. But, like, what was interesting, dude, yeah. <laughs> so, basically... Basically, Larry Walker was Pedro Serrano on Major League Two when he tries to be like happy Pedro. And he's like, oh, I love the baseball bat. And then when he strikes out, he's like, it's OK. We'll get him next time. That's a good pitch. Right. That's like basically Pedro Serrano. It's like Larry Walker in this situation. But he just kept sucking ass, man. And but um, George Brett's brother, Ken Brett, was Larry Walker's minor league coach. Right. Yeah. George Brett had a brother named Ken Brett, who was a really good baseball he's a really good pitcher I believe he died young and he had some injuries in his career but I believe George said that Ken was a way better player than he was but he, he was derailed by injuries right but Ken Brett was Larry's coach and Ken didn't care if the team won or lost he just wanted to develop players right and he saw um he saw Larry Walker play and he saw how hard he played and how bad he wanted to win and he um, he went ahead and sent Larry Walker to the Florida Instructional League, even though he was bad, because he said he worked so hard, but he also said Larry Walker had freakish hand-eye coordination and outstanding athleticism. And that's the only way I can explain a kid who at the age of 18 and 19 couldn't hit a breaking pitch, but turned into one of the, the best hitters all through the 90s and what I believe will end up being a Hall of Fame career because he will be elected in. It'll have to happen via a veterans committee because I think he's off the list now, but it will happen, dude. And that's what it was, just a freak athlete who worked his butt off. I mean, dude, if you, you join basically a beer, a beer softball league to try to figure out how to hit, he would do anything to succeed and he did it, man. Super impressive athlete. Super impressive athlete Larry Walker was. And his numbers prove it. He was not just a great hitter, right? He was not just a great hitter in Colorado. But he was a great hitter and a great fielder 
everywhere he went, man. Now, Moises Alou, dude, in 1994, Moises Alou had a, 140, a 153 OPS+. plus. That's exactly what Alex Bregman has now. And I already said Pete Alonso had 156. He was elite, dude. And, and in 1994, he was a top 10 hitter in the league. In batting average, he was ninth. At 339, his OPS was 10th in the league. He was 9th in hits. He had a 5.1 war in 94, and he comes from a phenomenal baseball family. His cousin was Mel Rojas, who was in the bullpen. In the bullpen on this team, which I'll touch on, was phenomenal anyway, dude. But Moises Alou came from a big baseball family, right? He was a top 10 hitter in the league, and he batted no batting gloves ever. He never wore batting gloves in his whole career. Moises Alou would pee on his hands. He would pee on his hands to toughen him up. <laughs> that, that, my friend, is old school. Some guys take steroids. Some guys take amphetamines. Bro, let me just drink a Mountain Dew real quick. I'm about to toughen my hands up. You know, he would pee on his hands, man. And it works. Athletes do that sort of thing. They pee on their hands, man. And, you know, Moises Alou, Moises Alou didn't, didn't start playing baseball organized until he was 18 as well. It's crazy. You're like all these late bloomers coming up, man. But Moises Alou was holding it down, so he was a left fielder, man. Top 10 hitter in the league in 1994. He was elite. He was an elite hitter, man. He was an all-star that year as well. Actually, this Expos team had a ton of all-stars. I think like five all-stars in 1994, something like that. Yeah, 1994 was actually a big year for the all-star game if you're a National League fan because... It was the year Moises Alou drove in the winning run, and that was the one that Tony Gwynn scored the game-winning run in 94. There's a picture of him jumping up and down at home plate like after he scored. It's a phenomenal picture. Moises Alou, I believe, drove him in. Um, but that year, the let me look at this. All-star-wise, the Expos had Ken Hill, Will Cordero, who was the shortstop for the Expos that year, really good young shortstop, and he was a really good defender. They had Darren Fletcher, who was a catcher they had signed a couple years prior. Was that three guys? Marquise Grissom, he was an all-star. I swear there was one more. That might have been it. That might have been all the all-stars for the Montreal Expos. And, I mean, but yeah, dude, they were so they were loaded, man. And they had a lot of guys make the all-star team. And a lot of your best teams, man, you can tell how good a team is by how many all-stars they get. And whatever, right? That's a good thing. So <laughs> that you can tell when I record this podcast when I sort of like run out of stuff to say, and like I'm trying to transition to the next. And like I don't really know what to say. Yeah, Darren Fletcher was the catcher for the Expos, right? I got to make sure I'm not messing this up. Yeah, yeah, they got him a couple years prior. I mean, he was a good he was a good catcher, dude. He was a good young catcher. He was only like 26 or 27, right? But Will Cordero, Will Cordero was a stud shortstop, dude. But one of the real studs on this team, dude, people don't talk about Marquise Grissom enough. Dude, I there were so many things I didn't know about Marquise Grissom. But look, so let's start from the top, though. In 1994, he was an excellent defensive player, which I've already talked about his defensive number. Defensive-wise in 1994, Marquise Grissom was Willie Mays. Don't care what you say it was. He was a freak athlete. His OPS plus that season was only 99. So judging by OPS plus, he was a league average hitter. But his overall war was 5.1. He had a 3.1 offensive war and a 2.2 defensive war. So even though his OPS plus number tells me he's an average hitter, the fact that he had a 3.1 offensive war was super impressive 
because he was just a useful guy when he came up to the plate. Useful, productive hits. But the only thing I can think of is why his OPS plus was league average, but he still had a positive offensive war was one. In 1994, Marquise Grissom had a 313 batting average on balls in play. That's good. That's good. So Marquise Grissom could get good contact on a ball, which is huge. You know, you're barreling the ball pretty good when that sort of happens because that's not an elite number, but that's a high number. That's a good number. But also, like I said, in 1994, 41 walks, 66 strikeouts. So he wasn't striking out a lot. Still had a 344 on base, which was high. He had 36 steals in 1994. Would have had more if he played the whole season. The season before, 93, Marquise had 53 steals. But then check this out. In 1992, Marquise had 78 steals. And in 91, he had 76. Marquise was a, it was elite, elite speed. That's, and that's what made him such a good defender. And he could steal bases. Dude, phenomenal athlete, dude. And check this out, dude. When Marquise Grissom... He grew up in Atlanta, right? And um, Marquise Grissom was, he came from a working family. Marquise was the second of 16 kids. Marquise Grissom was. Marquise lived in a house that his old man built from scratch while working at the Ford plant. So Marquise Grissom was a tough, hardworking guy because he came from a family that was tough and hardworking. I mean, his mom had 16 kids. Like, you got to be tough for that. And his old man built a house from scratch. His old man did. They lived in it, right? When he And Marquise Grissom, he couldn't afford to play organized baseball, man. His family, they couldn't afford it, dude. When you got 16 kids, you got to put, you know, you got to put food on the table, right? But what was interesting about this, man, is how Marquise Grissom started playing baseball is very Bo Jackson-esque, right? So when Marquise Grissom was eight years old, he was out throwing rocks. And this one day, man, he launches this rock, dude. And he, there was this cop driving down the road, but the cop was off duty. And the cop was driving his nice Cadillac around. Turns out Atlanta cops have Cadillacs. Um, I'm not saying he was doing anything on the side, but I think this cop was a good guy, right? Because Marquise is throwing these rocks. He launches this rock one day, and he hits the cop's Cadillac. And the cops finds Marquise, and it's like, did you hit my Cadillac? And Marquise was like, yeah, I'm sorry. And the cop was like, wow, you threw that rock really far. Listen, I won't press charges if you come play for my baseball team. And that's how Marquise Grissom started playing baseball. He threw a rock in a cop's car. And the cop was like, just come play for me, man. I don't want to press charges because you've got a great arm. And by the time Marquise Grissom was in high school, after high school, Marquise was offered college scholarships for baseball, football, and track and field. He obviously picked baseball. That was a good thing. But out of high school, he was drafted by the Cincinnati Reds, but he didn't take that. He was like, no, I don't want to. I want to go play college ball. So he went um, to Florida and played college ball at Florida, but then he was drafted by the Montreal Expos in the third round. And so that's how the Expos got him, man. Low-key, he went to Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University to play baseball. Made his debut at the age of 22, dude. This guy was unbelievable. And right now, Marquise Grissom, he lives in Atlanta, and he actually has a nonprofit to help underprivileged kids play baseball. So he's given back to the community. So Marquise Grissom was a hardworking guy, a phenomenal athlete, and still to this day gives back to his community, man. What a guy. And when Marquise was drafted, he was drafted as a pitching prospect and an outfield prospect. Marquise could pitch. But then, obviously, when they saw his athleticism, they were like, well, we got to have this guy you know, we need him to hit and we need him to run the bases, right? 
And, I mean, it was pretty impressive. You know, there were a lot of seasons where he damn near had more steals than strikeouts. And in, from 92 to 94, like I said earlier, Marquise Grissom isn't a Hall of Fame player, but from 92, 93 to 94, he was at a Hall of Fame level with those years. He got MVP votes four seasons in his career. He got MVP votes in 92, 93, 94, and in 1996. That's how elite he was. He was eighth in MPV voting MPV voting. <laughs> he was eighth in 1993. This was a good dude. Fast, super low K rate dude, but his defensive season was primo. And so that's why when I look at guys like Marquise Grissom, Moises Alou, and Larry Walker, there was so much natural talent with these guys, but they were all hard workers. And like I said, I used the Cubs comparison earlier. Well, I look at these three guys, right? And none of them are in the Hall of Fame even though Larry Walker should be. But these guys, there were so many young guys on this team that peaked all at the same time, dude. And that's what was so good at it, man. So by the time June came around, man, these guys were super hot, dude. They were rolling through teams by, you know, at the All-Star break, they won in first place. But by the time the strike came around, they were rolling so hard, they had already had a six-game lead over the Atlanta Braves, who were in the midst of, what would go on to become their 14-year streak of being division winners of the NL East. But truth be told, they didn't win that division 14 times in a row because the Expos won it in 1994, and they should be they should be recognized as the winners of it right in 1994. And sort of heading into the strike, man, you know, the Expos have all this homegrown talent, dude. They're sort of like the Tampa Bay Rays of the early 90s, right? And... What had happened was, is why why 1994 was such an important year for the Expos is because the Expos, they were not a rich team. Like I'd mentioned previously, um, the owners that were in place, you know, uh, Charles Bromfman was spending what he could, but, but he didn't have a lot of baseball experience. He truly just wanted to bring baseball to Montreal, and he wasn't really like that savvy guy, but he he knew what was going on, right? Um because the small market team, you know, the Montreal Expos, they weren't making a lot of money off their TV rights, right? So, for example, per game, the most the Expos made per game for their TV rights was 25000 a game. To put that into perspective, at the same time, the Los Angeles Dodgers were making 250000 a game. Now, I'm not saying the Expos' TV deal should be as much as the LA Dodgers, but $25,000 per game was a significantly significantly small amount compared right to what that should have been and so we're heading into the strike right it gets to be August 11th it was sort of after the all-star break a lot of the players all through the league sort of got down on the situation because they knew what was about to happen you know they they sort of like felt that you know that the strike right was going to happen and what the reason the exact reason for the strike Timing-wise was this. Number one, the Major League Baseball players, they knew they had to make a statement. So they went on strike. They said they were going to go on strike. It, I think it was like two months' notice, right? They said they were going to go on strike. It was going to start on August 12th. They picked August 12th because, number one, the players would be able to get most of their money for the season, right? So that was number one. But number two, to strike about that time... The goal was to only have to strike for a few weeks because the owners 
wouldn't sacrifice all of their postseason money. I mean, surely, right? Because, you know, we're talking August here. You know, all the, the TV dollars and sponsorships that come in, you know, during the postseason, that's huge stuff. So those were really the two reasons why to really hit the owners hard and to put a lot of incentive for the owners to do something. And then two, so the players could, you know, get paid, right? It was important that they get as much money as they could because not all the players in Major League Baseball were Richie Riches, right? There were guys that, right, were making $50,000 a year. You know, Cliff Floyd, when the strike started, he went to Chicago and got a job at like a toy store, right? Lou Frazier, who was... Uh, he was in, I think he was a backup outfielder, Lou Frazier, for the Montreal Expos two years before this in 1992. He was a UPS driver, you know? So there were a lot of just regular dudes in the league. It's not like it was is now. I feel like even your lowest paid major leaguers get paid well, but I don't know. There are a lot of guys now that get called up and then sent back down, and they only make that league minimum, which is $500,000. Well, you know, they only make it. For like the few weeks they're in the pros and minor leaguers don't get paid anything. But needless to say, where was I at again? Oh, yeah. So with the strike coming up um, and the reason for the strike. That, so that's why they picked the date on August 12th for the strike. The reason why they had to go on strike is because Major League Baseball owners wanted to implement a salary cap. Ultimately to control and stop the growth of Major League Baseball player salaries. At least that's what I believe, right? I know a lot of the salary cap talk was to enable like revenue sharing money, but you know, as it sits right now with uh, the luxury tax, that was sort of the solve to that problem, right? That was the player's counter proposal for a salary cap. And still, there are certain problems with what's going on with today's collective bargaining agreement. I won't get into that, right? But the owners were about to unilaterally. The, or Major League Baseball and its owners were about to unilaterally implement a salary cap, which pretty much means after a couple years when there's not an agreement, Major League Baseball can unilaterally implement whatever they want. So, for example, this season in 2019, at the beginning of this season, Major League Baseball could have unilaterally implemented, I think it was the pitch clock, but they decided not to. Because that would be bad for player and league and owner. That'd be bad for the relationship between the league and the players association. But in 1994, the owners in the league were like, screw the relationship. Let's do this thing anyway. And if they decide to strike, screw them. We're going to get what we want. And to me, man, that is such that is such irresponsibility on the owners to put the players in that situation because truly the players didn't have a choice. They had to strike to fight for their rights, right? The only reason right now that players have it so good, like Major League Baseball has the strongest union in all of Major League sports, and it's because, you know, they would fight for their rights in the past, right? Because this was in 1994. I believe it was in, God, it couldn't have been, what, 10 years before that, that the owners were colluding against players? So in 1994, I mean, I don't believe we were really too far removed from collusion. And at the time, the relationship between owners and the Players Association was not good at all. And I can tell you when that was. I was in 87, right? So collusion was in the offseason 
between 1986 and 1987 because that was the year that I only remember this because that was the year that Andre Dawson signed with the Chicago Cubs because no one, all the owners had colluded against the players and nobody was offering free agents any money. So Andre Dawson goes into Chicago Cubs clubhouse with a blank check and just says, I'll play for whatever you'll pay me. So they signed him for $500,000, which was less than half of what he played for the season before. So when you go to 87 to 94, I mean, you're damn right that players were on edge and were determined to fight for their rights because it was only seven years prior that owners were colluding against players, right? So owners were treating players like crap and were about to unilaterally implement this salary cap that they shouldn't have been doing that to players because that spoils the relationship. So if you ask me, the strike was whose fault? I'm going to tell you the owners every time because they bullied and pushed around the players, treated them like crap, hence the collusion in 86 and 87. And it, the reason why we lost the World Series was just because of that, right? Major League Baseball could have signed something temporary to get this thing going and try to rebuild the relationship. But because the owners in the league were so stubborn, they canceled the World Series for the first time since like 1902 or something like that. Back when like polio was a thing and Model T was the car to drive, you understand? And at the time when Major League Baseball went on strike on the 12th, there, most people did not think that that strike was going to cancel the season because a season had never been canceled, right? A World Series, we've been through wars and the season had never been canceled, the World Series had never been canceled for any of these wars, for any of this stuff. And everybody in the Expos organization, and really most guys I feel like across baseball were like, whatever, we thought we'd go home, we'd buy strike for a couple weeks and so we'd come back because nobody thought the owners would sacrifice all that money. And as it turns out, not only did the owners sacrifice money, but they sacrificed a baseball team and a whole fan base to do it. And truth be told, Baseball's probably never been right since the strike in 1994. It affected it hard. And the owners in the league, I mean, they're running a business here. They should know better, right? Don't, like, mess with the product. Like, you poison the product, guys. It's no good. That's NG. But, you know, that was the thing. So, strike happened in August 12th. The... The World the World Series 1994 Mets... Uh, Expos champions... I don't know why I said Mets. The Expos champions, it just never happened, man. And the reason why the strike is to blame for the Montreal Expos not being able to hold together that team, it's because when the strike ended, or excuse me, when the strike started in 1994 and went on for, I think, 258 days, the Montreal Expos lost so much money and because they were already like kind of tightwads anyway, because they had to be, the Expos couldn't recover. They lost at least, at least $20 million, probably more, right? And when you're running, when you have to run so efficiently anyway, because you're in a small market, the fact that they lost at least over $20 million made it to where they couldn't afford to keep the lights on. They had to get rid of everybody. And that's what it was. So in a two-week span, they traded Ken Hill for nobody. They traded Marquise Grissom for, like, nobody. Roberto Kelly and nobody. Um, 
they didn't offer Larry Walker anything, and he went and signed with the Colorado Rockies. John Wetland, gone. Pedro Martinez, a couple years later, gone. The core was gone. Everybody was gone. They didn't try, but I don't think they could try. And part of the reason that they didn't try is because they were so intimidated by it. The owners of the, the owners of the Expos, Charles Bronfen, he didn't really understand like what to do. And he said in hindsight, he should have kept a couple of those guys. But at the time, I don't think he knew what to do because his business had lost so much money. Because even the Expos were going to get so much playoff revenue and the rest of the season revenue and the television rights and the radio rights, all that money for the rest of the season, it stopped coming in. It was done. And they they, they couldn't afford it, you know. I don't know. You know, I don't have the payroll numbers of the 1994 Expos, but payrolls probably weren't they – were, they weren't high at all, right? But – I mean, so when I say that, the, I mean, a whole team's payroll back then couldn't have been like what, five million dollars. I'm gonna lo- I'm gonna look that up real quick. Actually, I don't know what the '94 Expos or what a team you know in the '90s. I don't know what their payroll would have been. I know the Expos had the lowest the lowest payroll in all of baseball because they couldn't afford much. And so what I'm saying is like when the Expos lose $20 million, like, that's huge to them. Their whole payroll of the Montreal Expos in 1994, I'm on some website that's telling me their whole payroll was 27th in baseball, and it was 18955000 So that they basically lost their whole damn payroll. Like So that would be like if they had paid this payroll again for 1995, that would be like them doubling their payroll. Because of all the money they lost. And I know they lost probably more than $20 million. There's no way they can afford that. So so Major League Baseball, because, you know, they forced the players to strike. Yeah, not only did they lose the World Series, they lost the whole dang team. Right? But because of all of these things, right, the, the Montreal Expos went through so many different owners. And it was ran so bad from the beginning. Because, and the people that start that started the expos right the owners i believe they had truly good intentions but they just didn't know how to do it and that's why i believe right now if you were to put a team back there i think creating the montreal expos again would be huge for major league baseball i think there's such a such a great story behind it i think there's a great amount of nostalgia behind it behind it and I do believe that a lot of baseball's previous success has been around these nostalgic stories like in the 90s right always tuning into sports center and wondering who's on pace to break Roger Maris's record is Tony Gwynn gonna bat 400 right hitting streaks of 56 games by Joe DiMaggio when Pete Rose I think did it like in 40 something games Marquise Grissom or Moises Alou had a 30 game hitting streak in his career once right all of these like nostalgic historic records man that's sort of what you chase and bringing the Expos back. I think that would be such a phenomenal storyline for Major League Baseball. The reject franchise that couldn't get anything good. If someone just came up there and blew it out of the water. And in this day and age with data, you know, like if you look at teams like the Oakland A's and the Tampa Bay Rays, who are finding success year after year with low payroll numbers because they're smart, Right. Somebody that's intelligent could run a Montreal Expos team and give the city of Montreal, man, 
baseball again because it's, again, the fans in Montreal, it's not that they didn't love the Expos or they didn't show up. It was just the stadium sucked. The stadium, Olympic Stadium, was built. it wasn't even built for baseball. It's completely out of the way in an awful location. The stadium was horrendous. And it's like I said, man, it's like, you know, it's like, I mean, I compared it to Pizza Hut. Right early in this episode, it's like your favorite restaurant having one location a few minutes from your house, but the experience is so bad because the seats suck. It smells funny. It's cold. It's like an ashtray. Olympic Stadium was freezing cold all the time. It was not a comfortable place to watch a game, so people weren't gonna, you know, not gonna go and watch it. Man, it's just not convenient. And I'm not being a complainer, but if it's a stadium that's not even comfortable to take your family to. Then when people are working nine to five, you know, they're they're not gonna make the time or spend their hard earned money to to go to this game that can't accommodate them and their family, you know. And the product, it was a it was a great product, but it was just delivered bad. That's all it was, you know. Don't burn my don't burn my pepperoni pizza. Don't burn my stuffed crust. Do a good job at it. If you don't do a good job at it, I'm not gonna come back. You understand? That's the best analogy. All my analogies are around food. You understand? That's just what it is. I'll I'll think of something better in the future, but baseball would succeed in Montreal, man. I'm going to end this, dude. That's an hour. Wow, that's an hour on the Expo. This is going to be a long episode, man. Thanks for making it through it. Hope you enjoyed some of this, dude. We'll get something soon, hopefully this weekend. But other than that, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, we will catch you on The Greatest Show on Dirt. Later, Gators.